Clinical governance. It's that important but sometimes intangible thing that we know we need to take seriously. Besides, I mean, this is healthcare. We're dealing with important information and basically with people's lives. So we need to have strong governance and controls and security around it all because that's just a given. It's easy to say and talk about, but if you're on the front line of healthcare or aged care, which is the pointy bit where it all happens, the doing the doing, how does that apply to you? Do you do something differently so that you can do clinical governance better? What does it even look like when clinical governance goes wrong? Well, with me today is Dr. Melanie Tan, a legal professional with a background as a medical practitioner, so she gets the real-world application of clinical governance in aged care and health. So today, we're talking about what clinical governance is, why it's important, particularly when it comes to digital health, and how, as an industry, we can all lift our knowledge and awareness when it comes to this important topic. Collaboration starts with the conversation. Team Health Tech, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Melanie Tan. She's a lawyer with a background as a medical practitioner and health and medical negligence law. She consults and advises providers on clinical governance and medico-legal risk, particularly in the aged care space. She's now also a certified health informatician Australasia, having recently completed the CHIA exam with the Australasian Institute of Digital Health. Hey, Melanie, how are you going? Good, thanks, Pete. How are you? Super duper, thank you. Thanks for joining all the way from over in Radelaide. Yeah. And uh, it's great to have you on the show. And you appeared um, at one of our summits recently, at the Winter Summit, speaking about this topic in particular. So it's great to bring you back Thanks and very talk much, a Nick. bit more about it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Amazing. So for those that don't know Dr. Melanie Tan, tell us a little bit about you and your background, please. Me and my background, well, this is always a really long and convoluted story, I'm afraid. Good start. <laughs> Since uh, day one at med school in 1991 and then seven years later at law school, but I will do my best to give you the abbreviated version. So I started life as a doctor and then became a lawyer pretty much straight after that and since then have been juggling between the two. As a doctor, mainly locumed in public hospitals, mainly in emergency departments, and as a lawyer, I've worked as a medical negligence lawyer and in aged care and in health law generally. And I've also worked as a medical legal advisor for medical defence organisations and also in claims management as neither a doctor nor a lawyer. So I recently decided to go out on my own as a consultant in clinical governance because Throughout all my experiences, which have been really diverse and none of which completely satisfied me, I realised that what I really cared about in my heart and what drives me and what motivates me was safety and quality in care. So whether it's healthcare, aged care, disability, so across all care sectors, community care. So in that sense, I've been thinking about clinical governance for a very long time without realising it and, and without articulating it as such. And I guess going out on my own just allows me the freedom to really explore this and find my own identity in this space. Interesting. I want to get into the clinical governance side a bit more. That's the focus of this episode. But I'm always fascinated talking to people who study like multiple professions. It's always an interesting story hearing that and the why. I'd love to know a bit more about that kind of decision to go 
from you've you've done the medicine side and then it's like picking up a, a law degree is not something you can do over a weekend. So that's that must have been a big decision. Now, are you sure you really want to hear this? Pick what you wish for. Because this is a really long-winded part of my story. We don't have to, but the, if, if you're interested in telling the story. I'm happy, I'm happy to tell you. All right. So let's start from when I was at school. <laughs> and I always thought I'd want to answer. When I was at school, I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I loved words and I loved analysis. And my dad used to say I loved arguing with people, which well, I don't necessarily, but maybe in, in my youth, I was uh, more, a bit more hot-headed than I am now. I loved humanities and I always had this sense of right and wrong and justice and ethics. And I felt those things very strongly as I was growing up, I suppose, looking out for other people. When I was 16 and had to make the decision in leaving school as to what course I wanted to do, I, I suddenly thought, oh, I don't know if I'm tough enough to be a lawyer. And I suddenly thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I loved talking to people and analysing their behaviour mm. and, and their minds. And, and So I decided to do medicine, basically, and which was six years in those days. In my fifth year, I was really struggling because I just couldn't find my niche. I did psychiatry as a student and decided I didn't want to be a psychiatrist. And then I thought, now what? Uh, and so then I thought, well, why don't I go back and study law and combine the two? And that would be my way of specialising in medicine. I didn't know how I wanted to combine it. I just knew that I wanted to combine them because there were certainly aspects of medicine that I did enjoy. And that was a people aspect and helping people and all of that. So I thought I'll finish my internship and then I'll have my full registration as a doctor, then I'll move on. So I did that. I did my internship in 97. And then in 98, I moved to the UK to study law at Cambridge. And then I went on to qualify as a solicitor in London after that. So all of that took five years. And I did that just because I wanted some experience in the UK, whatever I was doing. After that, I came home with a clean slate thinking, okay, I've finished my medical qualification. I finished my legal qualification. Now what? Mm. So I thought I just wanted to take my time to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. And in the meantime, freaked out at the thought of losing seven years of my life in studying medicine and training to be a doctor. So I went back to medicine. And despite always intending to leave medicine altogether, I was never able to quite let it go until about three and a half years ago when I got to the point that I knew I wasn't going to miss you know, being in the hospitals anymore. Having said that, I still mm. sometimes miss being in the hospitals now. But when I came home to Melbourne after qualifying as a solicitor, went back to medicine, then I was trying different things in the legal space. I worked at what was then the Department of Human Services in their health law team. And that was really fun, drafting legislation, things like that. And then I got lured back into private practice with a law firm working in medical negligence. Now, when I say lured back to private practice, I say that because after spending two years training as a solicitor in London in law firms, I'd actually left that thinking I didn't want to work in law firms anymore. At that time, I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go in Australia and see what it's like. Maybe Australian law firms are different. So I ended up working in medical negligence for a few years before I decided to go back to London. This is mm -hmm. part of why my story is really long. <laughs> Continued to work <laughs> in medical negligence in London there with law firms there. And at that point decided I really, really don't want to do this. I, I didn't enjoy being a medical negligence lawyer. And I, I did only work in defence as well. So acting on behalf of doctors and hospitals, and I felt that I wasn't really helping anyone. I felt that medical negligence was really a lose-lose situation. And I didn't get any job satisfaction out of that uh, work. So I left that and hung around in London for a bit while I decided where I wanted to be, went back 
to working as a doctor again, as I always did when I was deciding what I wanted to do and loved it again and stayed in London because I was really enjoying working as a doctor there. And then a job popped up in insurance for basically a medical legal assessor to work on Italian medical malpractice claims. So that was something really different and novel and a bit of fun. I got to go to Italy quite often to help uh, try and close these claims off and also got to work with another doctor, lawyer person also from Australia. So we got along like a house on fire. So I did that for a couple of years before deciding to come home again once and for all. So after another four and a half years in London, I came back to Melbourne again and transitioned back into another claims job since that's what I was doing in London but it was also a good way for me to transition back into the local jurisdiction again and get to just become, re-familiarise myself with with what was happening in claims in Victoria at least. And then after about a year of that, that's when I decided, no, no more medical negligence at all. (laughs) Even as a claims manager, I'm done and dusted with that for the same reason that I just, I, I didn't get any real job satisfaction out of that. And I went back to medicine again, working in emergency, locoming all over the place, just doing a bit of surgical assisting. And that's when I ended up at the medical defence organisations and as a medical legal advisor. And I really enjoyed that because it involved supporting my peers, helping them see things from a different perspective. And I also, uh, with one of the MDOs, was able to be a lawyer again and actually give legal advice. Uh, so I did that for a few years and then ended up ultimately working as a lawyer again, back in a law firm in aged care. So I, it was just something I wanted to to try, I suppose. At that time, the Aged Care Royal Commission was really was ramping up and I thought, oh, it would be really interesting to work on something like that. And so an opportunity came up for me to work as a lawyer on the aged care team of another law firm. So that's what happened. And I did that for a couple of years, two and a half years, and, and really enjoyed that work. It was I actually enjoyed that work much more than I did medical negligence because it was a lot more varied, a lot more interesting. I felt that I was able to help clients a bit more in terms of preventing risk as opposed to just putting out fires as you do medical negligence. But I guess throughout the two and a half years, I, again, I came to realise that while I really enjoyed the work in the aged care space, what meant the most to me was all the things that related to clinical governance, essentially, safety and quality in care. And that's when I decided I should really go back to my roots as a doctor drawing on my varied legal experiences as well as my clinical experiences and see how I can help people make things better. Amazing. I had no idea of that um, that background and you look nowhere near old enough to be able to have that many years of experience, Melanie. So um, I think that's amazing. But what I really like about that story is the fact there are so many professionals who go down one particular career pathway or look to invest in you like, because like you say, if you're looking at studying medicine or law or any kind of profession, there's a number of years that you lock in and you say, well, this is me. And then once you've done that, it's kind of like a sunk cost. You're like, well, that's what I am now. And then what, how do I then do something that's fulfilling? And you can, you know, everyone writes their own story and pulls from experiences they've had and qualifications. And then that's kind of like the perfect Molotov cocktail of experience and qualifications to do what you do now and focus on the, the particularly on the clinical governance side of things, is, which is what we're talking about today. So that's amazing. Thank you for telling that story. Now, with clinical governance, and we're, we're talking a lot about that today, for those not familiar with the concept, what, what, is, what does clinical governance mean to you? Put as simply as possible, clinical governance is essentially about how everyone involved in care delivery can work together 
and take responsibility to ensure that the people we care for are provided with safe, effective and high quality care to support optimal outcomes and also how we can constantly improve in doing so. And by everyone involved in care delivery, I mean from staff at the point of care and up to the board in partnership with consumers or patients. And that's crucial. I think that we always, always focus on the patient or the consumer when we're thinking about clinical governance. And there are a lot of elements that are required to clinical governance. And we hear these buzzwords around clinical governance all the time. So, you know, systems and processes, leadership, culture, risk management, oversight, monitoring. But all of these words, I think, really go to the fact Ultimately, we're all responsible and we're all accountable. So I think much of clinical governance is about how we manage these responsibilities. And as I said, always focusing on the consumer. And I think as well, when we talk about clinical governance being everyone's responsibility, sometimes it's hard for everyone to put it in context. So I'd love to hear your own personal experiences and how, how that applies to you. Thanks, Pete. So I always think back to my internship back in 97, because it was really the only sort of full-time year of medicine that I did since then it's been sort of, you know, in patches. But one of the things that really used to eat me up as an intern was watching senior doctors fighting and arguing over their opinions rather than just sharing them and listening to each other when it should have always been about the patient. I didn't understand why that was happening. I used to think to myself, this should be about the patient. Why does it not seem to be about the patient? In addition, it used to upset me that we didn't support each other as junior doctors within the hospital. And there was a very uncomfortable culture of egos and poor leadership and blame rather than support and collaboration. I remember my internship year as very dog-eat-dog. That's how I remember it, very dog-eat-dog. And again, it shouldn't have been like that. It should have been all about the patients. So it made my internship really depressing. You know, I spent a lot of the time in tears in the toilet. And I suppose it was a final push for me to leave medicine. And I often think to myself that had it not been like that, I might have stayed on just a little bit longer before moving on, you know, just to get a bit more clinical experience. So really back in 1997, even I was thinking about clinical governance, but I just didn't realise it. And I suppose everything I've done since then, I've got that memory behind me. So that was my personal experience in clinical governance. And I really hope, you know, I'm not in the acute sector now. I really hope that it's changed and it's moved on. Although I have to admit, I have friends who are in the acute sectors and I'm not confident that it fully has Yeah, from yeah. right here. Yeah. There'd be a lot to unpack there in the whole kind of culture aspect and other bits and pieces that you yes. raise. For this episode in particular, looking at clinical governance and being talking health tech, it would be remiss of me not to kind of drill down then and think about what clinical governance means in the context of digital health. Can you tell us a bit more about that? If we think about clinical governance as a responsibility to ensure, ensure safe, effective and high quality care in whatever we're doing, then really the same principles will apply in digital health as the same principles of clinical governance will apply in any care sector, whether it's aged care or disability or, or mental health. But we do, of course, adapt these principles so they actually make sense to the circumstances and that's part of clinical governance in itself. So in the context of digital health, there's a couple of ways we can think about it. First of all, we can think about clinical governance in relation to the actual digital health tool itself, as well as the governance around its use and implementation. Remembering always that the focus is on the consumer and our aim is still always to provide safe, effective and high quality care for them and to never lose sight of that core purpose. 
So if we consider a digital health tool in itself as supporting clinical governance, then we should be thinking about its effectiveness in, in doing so and how we can assess this. So for example, does this particular EMR actually improve the efficiency and effectiveness of documentation and access to information? Does it improve communication and continuity of care or is it prone to error? And I guess I often thought about this a lot as a locum doctor when I had to constantly adapt to different environments, work in different hospitals, each with different EMR systems and had to work with systems that were not necessarily intuitive or that tried to include too much information. So what you were looking for was too hard to find or had drop-down boxes where you couldn't find the actual option that you needed. So I've often thought about clinical governance without realising it in the context of EMRs. But going back to designing a digital health tool, I suppose, I guess it's always important to really look through a clinical governance lens when you're developing a tool. And I mentioned before at the summit, I think, the importance of co-design with stakeholders, because at the end of the day, the tool needs to make sense to those who actually use it whether we're talking about consumers or workforce. And we all have very different perspectives on this. And what's intuitive for one person might not be intuitive for another person. And I'm not someone who's naturally good at technology. When I first got my iPhone a few years ago, a few years ago, more than a few years ago, <laughs> what's that? and I was very resistant to it because I thought, I, don't, I just need a phone to call people. But when I got my first iPhone, I tried to make a call to someone. And I thought, how do, how do I call someone? I was looking for the call button. There was nowhere on the phone that said call. I didn't realise you actually had to just press a number and it would automatically dial. So, and obviously what's intuitive net today is different to what was intuitive then. And now that's a lot more intuitive. But I think it's just thinking about usability is really important because the less usable something is, the more risk you create in its use, essentially. The other thing that's really important to think when you're considering digital health is how we collect and use data and information, because this is fundamental to digital health and the risks that are associated with this as well. So while the questions we would ask in relation to clinical governance in the context of digital health are really the same questions we would ask with anything in healthcare, you also have to put additional importance on how you manage information and integrating clinical governance with good data governance to ensure privacy, security and effective use of data. So I've talked a little bit about thinking about the product and whether and how that actually meets the needs of consumers and any workforce using it and whether it's effective and if not, how we can improve it. But then outside the product, we also need to be looking at the context in which it's used and understand the digital health tool within the overall framework of healthcare delivery to which ordinary principles of clinical governance apply. So for example, and I've referred to EMRs already, but one type of EMR may be suitable for one environment, but be too detailed and confusing for another. So we always need to be thinking whether the tool we're using suits the circumstances we're in. And that's the other thing about clinical governance is about not taking a blanket approach. It always has to be tailored and bespoke to the consumers you are caring for in the environment you're caring for them within. So I hope that sort of helps a bit, Pete. Um, I, you know, have yet to find a really structured approach for clinical governance in digital health, but I, I think the key to good clinical governance is knowing what questions to ask and asking them. And it's always thinking about how we can continually improve. So clinical governance is an iterative process and 
does include asking the same questions over and over again. And do you think with your experience from being a legal practitioner, does that bring additional insights or ways at looking at issues when it comes to clinical governance. I feel like sometimes both the medical and legal things coming together speaks quite strongly to some of the elements of clinical governance, do you think? Yeah, look, I I do feel that I've got a different insight into clinical governance than another person might. I mean, I think everyone will have their own insight, their own insight anyway into clinical governance, but mine stems from the fact that I was a medical negligence lawyer. I did see all the things that went wrong or were perceived to go wrong. I had to analyse why. I had to consider where things might have been done differently. And then as a medical legal advisor, so not necessarily working medical negligence, talking to doctors all the time, listening to their experiences and the challenges they face and the complaints and, the de- and demands that came from patients gave me another perspective of how it felt to be the recipient of these complaints and, and demands, I suppose. I mean, having said that, I also had have frontline experiences of these complaints and demands as well. And, and I understand how a lot of things that we advise as, as lawyers and as clinical governance advisors, I suppose I would say, in practice, a lot easier said than done. So I have uh, a deep interest in how clinical governance actually translates into practice because it's easy to say you should be documenting as much as you can contemporaneously. But when you're in a super busy emergency department and looking after six patients at the time, at a time, easier said than done. You can't just see one patient sit down and write your notes and then go see another patient. You're constantly juggling. So as a claims manager, I remember um, the lawyers advising me in those days, oh, this, this was clearly negligent. They should have made this diagnosis at that time. It was clearly negligent. And I think to myself, well, that's easy for you to say, but why don't you stand at the patient's bedside and make that diagnosis at that time? The perspectives you come from, I think, are really important. And I I hope that I can bring those perspectives in my work in clinical governance. I I guess I should also add that as a regulatory lawyer, which is was my most recent iteration, can I say, <laughs> of myself, was that you're sort of somewhere in the middle of all of that. And in the context of clinical governance, that work is that work does include anticipating risk and understanding what I consider is the minimum standard required. Because clinical governance actually goes above and beyond that. We're, in clinical governance, we're talking about, you know, the best possible care. And regulation is very much a part of clinical governance or a component of clinical governance because it sets that minimum bar in terms of care delivery. But as I said, yeah, clinical governance you know, does go above and beyond that. So I do tend to see regulation through the lens of clinical governance, but because of my background as a medical negligence lawyer, I also see it through the lens of the common law and our duty of care as well. Such a unique perspective, and it's great to have your thoughts and, and insights on that. I think it adds a lot of value and, and colour for people trying to understand the space and thinking a bit more about then about the education and awareness and knowledge about clinical governance generally. Do you think there's enough training and education and material out there for people to get a good handle and understanding on what clinical governance actually is? That's a very good question, Pete. I, I don't think there is in a formal sense. And I think if you go out to look for it, it's not 
easy to find. It's, I don't believe it's something that's routinely taught in medical school. I couldn't speak for all medical schools, but that's my understanding. And that's despite the fact that everything we do, starting from our training and learning itself, is really about clinical governance, how we can provide safe, effective and high-quality care. And I think that most of us as doctors, even junior doctors, understand those principles, but we just don't articulate it as such. But again, I think that if we look at things through a clinical governance lens, then it doesn't become such a big, scary beast. And if even the words clinical governance can be embedded into medical education and the concepts and the principles around it, it should become ingrained in our culture. And then we can become conscious of everything we do and how we do it. And I would hope that ultimately things like culture and teamwork and communication and all that will naturally improve. But ultimately, I think if we can learn to work with a system rather than fight it, which I think is often the case from what I've observed throughout my years, then I think that's a really important teaching for our junior doctors. But in terms of sort of formal courses around clinical governance, there, there aren't a lot, but I must say that the Australasian Institute of Clinical Governance has uh, a certificate course, which is really good. And I started out my clinical governance journey doing that course because I wanted to give myself a framework and structure to think around. And that has provided that for me. So Amazing. And just lastly, thinking then about some more resources or frameworks, as you say, for people wanting to learn more about clinical governance. It sounds like the Australasian Institute of Clinical Governance is a good start. Are there any other resources or, or places to go that people should check out for more about, particularly when it comes to digital health as well? Well, yeah, interesting you ask that because I think if you're interested in digital health, anything in digital health, really, I think actually the, the CHIA exam, I thought it was really useful to set yourself up with a lingo and just to be able to identify where those clinical governance issues can pop up in health informatics and the digital health space. So I would recommend that. But I also would recommend that if you do it, you know, find a study buddy because uh, it's, it's a lot of information to trawl through. But otherwise, I think it's really just about constantly talking to people, reading, keeping up to date with the standards that are continually popping up, you know, from the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare, for example. There's new standards always being developed and keeping an open mind, I suppose. But I think, look, I think listening to people listening to what other people are saying is super important and engaging with them. I think you can learn so much that way. And I feel like I've learned so much in the last few months just by doing that. I think it's a great way to summarise, not just in terms of learning more about clinical governance, but generally operating in this space where many are looking to find their place in it and ultimately all for the same purpose of helping patients and improving things. But if we can all listen a bit more, then then there's probably a lot more we can do. So Dr. Melanie Tan, I really appreciate you coming on the show and taking us through and talking a bit more about clinical governance and your journey with it. I'll put some details for you and how people can get in touch with you in the show notes of this episode. So people will get in touch if they want to. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. It's been a real honor and great to meet you. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Listener.